This podcast is a member of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts and content creators, visit bio.link slash red5. Hey, this is Todd Hoffman from WSTR Galactic Public Access, and you're listening to Conversations with Pat and Charles. These two goofballs will make you laugh, and you'll learn a little bit something about Star Wars. Hey, Pat and Charles, Cam here. And Bub. And Bub, always. Thank you. You kind of remind me of another favorite duo of mine. So this is for you guys. Catchy. Conversations, you're the one. You make Star Wars lots of fun. Yeah, you do. Conversations made the force be strong with you. Sing it, Bubby. Yeah, Bub. Pat and Charles, you're so grand. Never afraid to lend a helping hand. That's true. Conversations made the force be strong with. Absolutely be strong with. I see what you did. Oh, oh conversations made the force be strong with you. Hey, the force be with you guys. Love you, dudes. Hello, and welcome to Conversations. I'm Charles. And I'm Pat, and this is episode 104. I'm supposed to say something interesting and wonderful about money here. Well, on behalf of the Republic and the Rebels and also the Empire, I didn't know I was doing this, but here we are. Because it's also episode 105. Yes. That was taken completely off guard that he had to provide an intro like he had in the previous 104. I had a different intro. Let's try it again. Episode 105 Wars. Galactic conflict is a costly affair. Building the Imperial fleet takes strength, planning, and credits. For the fledgling rebellion, garnishing forces and firepower is a much more daunting task. Unlike that voice acting. <laughs> I don't fucking know. I've never seen Pat that flustered in an intro. Because <laughs> I use... I, this is some... This, some... <laughs> well, these disembodied voices that some of you may be familiar with are our treasured guests. Wait a minute. Is that Rob from the Jedi Temple Archives podcast? Yes. No. And none other than Ro from the Scarif podcast, co-founder of the amazing, all-inclusive, accepting of everyone, oh, Scarif podcast, co-founder of the Red 5 Network, of which we are all co-founders. I think we should like take a moment to uh, acknowledge just how awesome that is. Let's uh, pat each other on the back. Ready? I'm just going to put Pat on my back, and then I'm going to do a force <laughs> flip around Agamemnon. Yes. Force flip, you will. Mm-hmm. I have officially patted myself on the back. <laughs> it's Master Blaster. <laughs> oh, wow. This got off the rails immediately. Yes, but we do have sort of a umbrella but subject the- tonight. Yeah, we do. We're going to try and keep it to contain it to a certain uh, subject tonight. We are going to be talking about, in the original trilogy, how we see the Rebels and their war machine, as it were, compared to the uh, impressive size and scope of the 
Empire's war machine, including the Death Star, but all their ships and their troops and everything looks the same. It's been built up from the ground, whereas the rebels have their grassroots movement and have you know, accepted help from across the galaxy to help them defeat the Empire. First of all, uh, the, the argument has been made about the lack of care and concern on behalf of the Empire for its troops, yes? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, mm-hmm. you know, everything they do is sort of about numbers. So you've got all these ships and, like, their ties don't even have shields. Like, it's a mess. The whole thing's a mess. But these Republic ships, I think, were made a little better. You know, a little more fortified. A little bit stronger, a little more firepower, maybe. Because they didn't have as many back then. They didn't need as many. Because they, you know, first of all, before the Clone Wars, they weren't in wars. Right. So they didn't need, like, a bunch of them. Right. Mm. So so the ones they had were very sufficient to, to do the job, right? So basically, once the Empire took over, they they stopped manufacturing of any of that stuff and went to the the imperial model of like get them out and get them out quick uh so i think just based on that alone the the rebels have higher quality ships you know and you said something interesting a few minutes ago regarding the imperial uh war machine and their ships Uh, you know these uh ships are small smaller no shields um it says a lot about the mentality too of the empire um these uh stormtroopers per se were expendable they churned out uh hardware for the sheer numbers of it you know you had uh you know hundreds of tie fighters all over the galaxy patrolling it was really basically kind of a a a structured way of instilling fear in in the citizens uh if you can imagine uh you know, a landscape full of, uh, you know, stormtroopers, you know, walking mm. the, you know, over a hill. Uh, ju- I mean, just imagine, um, you know, in a situation where you see just a massive amount of, of TIE fighters just heading towards you. I mean, you're going to ship your pants. <laughs> <laughs> and ironically, you almost never see that in any of the films, even when you would expect that that would right. be a strategy to employ. But uh, no, I mean, even beyond uh, the fact that they didn't have shields. I mean, they didn't have atmosphere in those TIE fighters. I mean, that's why the TIE pilots had to wear <laughs> the, uh, right, the pressure the expensive gear that they had to wear. It wasn't until really uh, we saw the first uh, order come along where we started to see TIE fighters where there was actually life support and atmosphere in the TIE fighters. Uh, they didn't have uh, hyperdrives. You know, if the uh, if the right. Empire deployed their their ties and there was a reason for them to bug out of the battle, they were just leaving those ships behind uh, with no means to get back without some sort of a troop carrier. What a bunch of jerks! Yeah. But to Rose's point uh, about that visual threat, you know, take Andor for example. When you hear that that mm. unmistakable mm. screech of a tie. Right, you know, coming over the the canyon, it's like uh, we better hide because they're out and they're they're patrolling, and that's only one thing makes that noise. Right, and it was just one Tie Fighter. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I think uh, 
I think the empire really worked on, on the, the fear of, uh, uh, I guess the potential of what was in your imagination. You know, Rob, you said it that, uh, you know, you didn't really see a lot of TIE fighters in the original trilogy, the way that I described it, but it, it was still pretty fearful to, to imagine that yeah. force, you know, flying towards you or, you know, whether it's the stormtroopers or the TIE fighters, I think the, the sheer imagery of, uh, and, and I know, Rob, you are a, a very big fan of this, but the sheer image of a Star Destroyer in atmosphere. In atmosphere, right. I <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when we see uh, a Star Destroyer hovering over Jetta City, I mean, that is a powerful image. And you know that uh, you don't want to mess around, you know. And we see that, too, in Rebels, where you have Empire Day and... The citizens of, well, in Rebels, this, this show that we are familiar with in the animated show, it's on Lothal. But you can imagine across the galaxy, the citizens of these planets that are now occupied by the Empire are forced to, you know, quote unquote, celebrate Empire Day and, and the founding of the, you know, the Galactic Empire. And everyone should be out there celebrating and being happy for this, you know, stability and security. And you've got stormtroopers all over the place. And like you said, Ro, it's just that that intimidation factor of these these faceless, uh, uh, you know, automatons almost of the Empire forcing fear upon the citizens and keeping them in line with that fear. And that's part of their their biggest uh, way that they can keep the rebels off their tails is that the regular citizens don't want anything. They want a conflict. They just like, let me get my business done, go home and, and take care of my family. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the key to the empire is, you know, they, they rule everything. They can tax everybody. They can, you know, get all these funds to build giant space stations. So, so they have, literally everything and everyone at their disposal to build these weapons, build these fleets. And, you know, no one's going to say no to them because if they say no, they'll be destroyed. Yeah. So they amass these tremendous fleets from everywhere, really. And, you know, the more they tighten their grip on these planets, the more they drain them of their resources and, and their people, you know, you would imagine that they would, um, conscript their labor for shipyards mm. and for weaponry and things like that. So so they really have every corner of the galaxy to to draw from in terms of, you know, resources and manpower and everything they would need to to really bolster their their military. Yeah, and I think you also have to look at it from the aspect of of what did the empire spend their money on with regard to their fleet and their uh, you know, their space faring weapons. You've got the Death Star, obviously, which was a huge, uh, a huge expense for the an Empire, both in terms of credits and in terms of resources. Uh, and then the fact that they clearly had a second one uh, kind of going as a backup. I know in the uh, in the EU, the expanded universe, I mean, there was uh, the Maw Cluster, uh, which was basically uh, a number of black holes that were all in kind of close proximity. And there was only one way in, one way out. And that was uh, kind of where the advanced science division had developed the, the Death Stars and was building them uh, after the initial Death Star. There were actually two other Death Stars that they were working on in that installation. They've retconned that a little bit. Now you've got the advanced science division uh, at Mount Tantus, as we saw in Bad Batch this season. But, you know, Palpatine liked the big flashy 
weapons, uh, you know, his, his star destroyers. And then he had to make the super star destroyers, um, mm -hmm. you know, he had his death star. He put the money into the big weapons of fear, uh, mm -hmm. and then had a very Sith mindset with regard to his, you know, his lower level fighter craft, which was that, uh, you're either more powerful or, or a superior pilot to your opponent, or you basically deserve to be annihilated. <laughs> what a jerk. <laughs> Right. No, it's yeah. true, though. Yeah, absolutely. And as we're seeing right now in the Bad Batch and uh, in the uh, season seven of the Clone Wars, we transition from these clones into the conscripted stormtroopers, transitions into the Empire and these ships and all these, this war machine that was for the galactic security. The Emperor just churns it into, well, this is my own private army and do with it what I want. Right. The smaller cells of the rebellion, eventually they link up and start to go against the Empire. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that they deal with in uh, in Rebels is the idea that, you know, Thrawn had come up with this idea for the TIE Defender, or the TIE, uh, yeah, I think it was the TIE yeah. Defender, Defender, right? Defender, uh, yeah. 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 The three uh, TIE panels as opposed to the two, uh, which was a, you know, a shielded craft. It had Atmo, it had a hyperdrive, it had all those things that would make it a superior fighter uh plus it had all the speed that was inherent in those ties uh and he was very much pushing for that because between that and the star destroyers it was going to give him a fleet that would make him better able to deal with these smaller isolated cells of rebels and on the other side you've got krennic uh pushing his his death star program and and that's what palpatine went with right this larger more powerful mm -hmm. uh, more fear inducing mm -hmm weapon and had the empire gone down the path of doing the tie defenders and basically making that kind of their space superiority fighter uh it could have been much much worse for the uh for the rebels instead of taking out one large weapon they'd have been dealing with these all yeah. over the galaxy mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's a good point and we see that in rogue one of course that sort of that transition from the power struggle between the tie defender project and the death star project and yeah. what was more valuable to the emperor? Well, like you said, Rob, the he wanted more splash versus mm -hmm. the tactical approach of Ron. Right. And it goes uh, it goes hand in hand with the empire's tactics. I mean, it basically is fear. And what would you fear more? Uh, a bunch of uh, smaller fighters or a planet killer? Mm. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. it's. Um, you know, it really demonstrates the the brutality uh, and the psychological warfare that the Empire is uh, is behind. Um, and it's, you know, it's an interesting way of, um, you know, scaring your opponent, obviously. But, uh, yeah, planet killers, you've got no way around that. You know, the, the fact that uh, the Rebels were able to exploit uh, the Death Star weakness in the way that we know is uh, was lucky for them because I don't think... Uh, I don't think they would have had any other way of, of stopping a Death Star if it weren't for the, the flaws in the yeah. design, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think the war probably would have lasted longer, too, if uh, the Death Star didn't exist and we had the Tide Defender program. Of course. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, woulda, shoulda, coulda. Uh, the way the things that kind of, uh, rolled out in star Wars, you know, history there, but, um, in universe, but yeah, pretty cool. 
It was a great symmetry to it too, because it's, you know, we always talk about how Palpatine had the long game. Uh, he had this vision. He could kind of anticipate what he thought was going to happen. And then he had backup plans for the things that he knew may go awry. And he, you know, he had a certain amount of vision uh, just inherent within his Sith abilities, but it's ironic and, and very fitting that his predisposition to go with these larger weapons that would strike fear into the hearts, which is a very sit thing to do, uh, turned out to kind of be his blind spot and his weakness within the overall trilogy. Mm. Yeah. I think the threat of a super weapon is enough to keep most people in line. So you blow up a planet and then everybody's talking about it. So, you know, another planet gets kind of on your radar as as a rebellion hub or something all you gotta do is like bring it near the planet and then they're like all right we're good because they know it's gonna blow them up right mm -hmm. and i think that's all the intimidation that you need um to hopefully keep people in line because obviously they don't intend to blow all the planets up because then that leaves them one no one to rule and two <laughs> Pretty much resourceless, because if you yes. blow everybody up, then it's like, well, you know, what are you, what are you doing? You gotta, you gotta be smart about it. So I think the image of that, you know, coming across your horizon is like, okay, well, we better shape up because uh, we don't want to get blown up either. Uh, and that's that's got a way of intimidating that not even, you know, a fleet of star destroyers can. Because it's a, a whole a whole imperial fleet doesn't have the the firepower to destroy a planet. So, yeah, and I totally agree. Is that I think, like Rob was saying, the Emperor has this vision of the threat of death. But Tarkin, he understood what he needed to do. We need a statement, not a manifesto, and that mm -hmm. was key to it. Is that as we saw in Rogue One, we see it further in Andor is that it was almost surgical precision with how do we deal that power at the planetary level? Because like you said, Pat, they are going on all these planets and strip mining them and taking every last resource and leaving the planets bare of anything useful for the greater plan of the empire. And it's totalitarian in that approach. And yeah, don't follow suit. Guess what? We'll just destroy you. Either with stormtroopers on the level, we'll you know kill you at person to person, or we'll just you know destroy your planet. And that was a a fear tactic that kept everyone in line. And we saw that in a Star Wars: A New Hope. That was the only way that they could keep all of these these systems in line. And Tarkin, above all, understood that the best. Yeah, and they started early. Um, you know, even before or during the construction, the early process construction of the Empire of the Death Star. I mean. They destroyed and completely decimated the Geonosians just to keep the secret uh, a secret. Mm -hmm. And I, yep. I find that, you know, I find that interesting. I find it terrifying. And again, going back to what I said earlier, it's just a scare tactic. It's a it's a big, badass power move by by Palpatine. And we know that Palpatine was planning to build that second Death Star because that is literally why he had Newt Gunray killed. Because when that de second Death Star came out, Newt Gunray would have been forced to say, this is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. <laughs> <laughs> so he was really thinking down the road. Exactly. Really thinking ahead. 
Yeah, you exactly. have to. You have to. <laughs> okay, that that part may not actually be canon, but no, I read that somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but it was brilliant. Hilarious. Lord Vader, you must kill Newt Gunray so he can't claim it's getting out of hand. <laughs> so ridiculous. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And uh, after the break, we're going to talk about how the rebels amassed their uh, military might and to be able to defeat the Empire and how that grassroots movement helped them bring the galaxy together. Take us out to our commercial, bro. Bow, 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 bow. <laughs> All right, my young Padawan, slice that training remote in half, and you can have whatever dinner you want for you and all of your friends. Yay! I want Kashyyyk fried pork! That's right! Padawans love the crunch, and masters love the nutrients in every bite of KFP. Welcome to KFP. What can I get for you? The party feast with all the fixings, please. You got it. Order 66 is up. Who's ready to head over to the temple? I am. The other kids are dying to eat. Like the colonel always says. This is Colonel Cody. It's finger licking good, son. At Kashikian Fried Pool, we do it right. Mmm, get yourself a bucket of Kashiki and fried pork. It's finger licking good. And we're back. Thank you to our sponsors. Um, so before the break, we had talked about how the Empire had amassed its military might through long-term planning of the Emperor and the precision uh, dispersion of this military with Tarkin and how they took the planetary resources and just built out this, you know, the, the massive machine that it ended up becoming in the original trilogy. Now we're going to talk about the rebel side where in the original trilogy, we just see them. We see the ships, but we don't really know where they came from. But the material that we've seen since the original trilogy in, uh, you know, starting in 77 has really filled out where these sources have come from and given us a lot of depth to where the rebels were able to um, amass these weapons and money and support from the, across the galaxy and, and just some really interesting story arcs. Before we start on that, though, I do, I do think there's one item that we need to talk about with regard to the Empire, and I think it's really interesting to see that, you know, they took a completely usable and workable war machine, not just with the clone troopers, but with the Venator uh, cruisers that they were they were using as their kind of base operations, their mobile base of operations, which were the precursor for the Star Destroyers. But they took these completely usable ships and just scrapped them. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't the, the newest and the greatest, they had no use for it. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And it's just interesting to see that it was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that they were going to press them into service in the outer rim or they were, they just flat out stripped them down to, to component parts and were done with them. And scrapped them basically. Yeah. Wow. Wow. 
And I'm sure some of that material went into the building of the Star Destroyers and the Death Star and I'm sorry, the Death of Star. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm sure that some of that stuff got reused, but it's just interesting to see that, you know, the Clone Wars was was not ridiculously long. And, uh, you know, a lot of these would have been potentially built toward the end of the Clone Wars and would have had years of useful life ahead of them. Uh, but it kind of it feeds into the topic we're going to discuss because uh, that's not the only thing that they scrapped, and uh, um, and it plays into the you know kind of the birth of the Rebel Alliance and the Rebel Fleet. It's uh, it's pronounced uh, Estrella de Muerte. <laughs> oh, very nice, very nice, Pat. So I think that's the pride of the Empire is um, that we've got the newest and greatest and look how well we're doing and uh, sort of a braggadocious of them. You know, that that kind of brags to the galaxy that, hey, look, we've got, this is brand new. There's not a scrape on the thing. It's probably, as far as you know, got the latest and greatest in firepower. So don't mess with us. Plus Bluetooth stereos. Uh, Bluetooth, yes. Bluetooth connectivity. Bluetooth, right? (laughs) But you know the you know the obviously the biggest difference between the uh, rebellions fleet and the Imperial fleet. I mean, you know, we saw even early on how the rebels kind of um, amassed their fleet with you know just regular ships or ships that were available at the time it wasn't anything that was organized it was a ragtag uh you know if you know though that's Battlestar Galactica uh, <laughs> ragtag fleet but um yeah I mean whatever was available at the time I think uh you know you had freighters you had uh, other ships of that kind that uh, were able to serve in some way uh, whether it's you know contraband or rescuing you know political prisoners or or whatever the case may be, you know it was anything but organized. I mean, even early on in the rebellion, you had different cells that were working independently, and uh, they didn't really seem like they were making a dent until they all got together in some organized way. And we can, I think, we can, you know, we'll we'll see that story play out maybe in season two of Andor a little bit, but yeah. uh, th- mm-hmm. thanks to Mon Mothma's uh, efforts to be able to kind of, you know, recognize the fact that uh, they were really not getting anywhere working uh, independently from each other. They really had to organize. Yeah, we saw that in Rebels for sure, where Phoenix Cell headed by Hera and you got Kanan and they headed to Reclam Station where, like Rob was saying, they were so old, they were just literally incinerating these old y-wings freighters and the rebels looked at it was like hey these are ships we can fly them just get them fuel and retrofit them with some blasters hey we're good to go and that became one of the major acquisitions of the rebel uh, alliance or the cell at least so they saw the value in these uh, derelict ships uh, throwaways these things that the empire in in their grand scope of things, consider them oh rust buckets. Let's strip them and destroy them so that they're no longer available. The rebels took them and put them together piece by piece to build their their fleet from you know duct tape and um, come on baby keep it together that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, they did get some sexy additions when the uh, you know the Mon Calamari uh, came over to the to the rebellion. Um, 
they provided a, a huge number of the the key yeah. capital ships um, with the Moncal cruisers that uh, were often the large. You know, they were kind of the uh, the answer to the Star Destroyer for the Rebellion. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, they were they were definitely retreads. You know, it was just like most of the people in the in the Rebel Alliance. They had a lot of outcasts from the uh, Imperial Academy. Uh, you know, Han Solo has that in his backstory. You get that from Wedge Antilles. You get yes. a number of of key rebel leaders and, and heroes of the rebellion that basically just felt like they, they couldn't go along with what the Imperial War Machine was was churning out. And, uh, you know, they they had their fair share of ace pilots as well. So it's interesting to see how their how their approach to obtaining ships was very much like their approach to obtaining a lot of their their fighting uh, <laughs> for sure they're participants yeah yep. so, yeah it's an alliance of retreads <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> that older model imperial pilot we'll take him we'll take it oh. <laughs> that trash let me look through it oh okay, what can you offer me i don't know how about atmosphere in the cockpit <laughs> yeah sold <laughs> how about it well yeah it's probably a good thing uh shields do i hear any yeah. takers for shields uh-huh. <laughs> and we see that again in rebels where the b-wing which was in development by pat pointed this out you know of course he knows but um the uh engineer quarry as yep. in ralph mccrory uh he was building out this b-wing that was ended up becoming this key ship for the rebellion uh he was reluctant to even release the design and only until he saw the prowess of Hera's piloting did he even actually consider allowing this design to go to the uh, Rebels. And it was a boon for the Rebel Alliance. I will say that's that's one of the things I have to give credit to Rise of Skywalker for. I'm not uh, generally a huge fan of a lot of the sequel trilogy films, but they absolutely stepped up and made sure that the B-Wings got some representation in that final battle, which was one of the, I mean... The fact that we had basically seen a B-Wing maybe in the battle in Return of the Jedi, but mm-hmm. certainly not really shining. We've seen it animated. Uh, and I always, again, it wasn't until probably a year ago uh, that I really understood what the whole designation of B-Wing stood for. I was, it looks like a T. What are we talking about? <laughs> That's no B. It's a blade wing. Yes, oh. a blade wing. Oh, That's so hilarious. Cool. Still yeah. a complete. Should have been a T wing. <laughs> now the E wing is the one that I don't yeah. think. Yeah, that was from. Uh, yeah, that Rogue was one, right? Now, well, the no. yeah, that was the U wing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah the U wing is the uh, the ship they basically had out from Yavin in that has the uh, the wings that sweep back. Ah. Which yeah. makes sense. Looks like a U wing, but the E wing was uh, was a fighter craft that existed only within the comics. Uh, but it looked like an E kind of on its side. It had uh, it had a cockpit and then like this sweep arm that came out that had the blaster cannons on it. So the B-Wing stands alone is the only ship that really doesn't fit that kind of means of designation for the Rebel Alliance. But uh, yeah. we'll, we'll let that go. <laughs> I mean, one, one could argue the A-Wing doesn't really look like an A. Depends how hard you plant it into the ground. <laughs> That is a mess. <laughs> it's an A-wing for a very short second. So aside from the Empire scraps, really, 
that the Rebel Alliance was able to commandeer and rescue for their own purposes. The Rebellion relied on whether it's Princess Leia or Andor to assist in this grassroots movement of aligning all of these disparate cells into a more cohesive unit for the eventual uh, events that we see in A New Hope. And that played out, like I said, in Rebels, it played out in Andor. And that's given some great backstory and some really intriguing angles that we didn't see, obviously, in New Hope. It, It makes that story so much more rich and gray area meetings that were not necessarily a hero side, but it was, you see the greater good in what they were trying to do. Well, and the, and the fact that Andor really understood kind of the mindset of his enemy, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, the fact that, you know, they couldn't believe that someone yes. would just walk in and take something. Uh, and, and so he was able to, you know, play that off. Unlike Dr. Pershing, uh, <laughs> a couple episodes ago in Mandalorian. By the same token, I think one of the amazing things that they did in Andor was the prison that uh, that they had them all divided up, seven floors, seven rooms on each floor, several seven tables in each room. And that, to me, absolutely resonated with, with how the Empire would go about doing things. Everyone's isolated. If someone mm-hmm. gets away, if someone's rescued, they don't have enough information to divulge what's going on in that facility because they're only building a a particular piece Mm -hmm. but then to have all the prisoners competing against each other so that their animus and their focus is on the other people in that room or the other people in the other rooms uh where their focus isn't on their jailers it's on Mm -hmm. basically avoiding that punishment uh like we talked about before but you know the empire is then able to conscript these individuals with very little risk to themselves to basically fuel that imperial war machine uh and that to me was just brilliant i thought that was exactly how palpatine an empire ruled by palpatine would operate oh without a doubt you know you talked about princess leia and uh I guess everyone's ability during that time to really pool their resources, uh, you know, not not having um, that many resources and being blocked, by the way, by, uh, you know, the Imperial Senate. They obviously there were forces at work that uh, wouldn't allow for the openness of Leia's work to be actually done. Um, they had to kind of, uh, you know, fight an uphill battle. Um, like, uh, like Rob usually says about the uphill battle that was involved in actually making star Wars. They also had an uphill battle, uh, you know, in universe trying to, uh, to pool their resources. Um, and I think, uh, you know, with, with any real life rebellion, I guess that is kind of the nature of the beast. Um, but, um, you know, the, the rebellion was very, very lucky in the defeat of the empire. Uh, mm-hmm. The Empire, they had the power, they had the will, they had the force to be able to, no pun intended, mm-hmm. uh, to be able to uh, to win at every turn. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I really do think that the Rebellion was, uh, was lucky in everything that they were able to recognize, all the opportunities they, that they were able to take advantage of, to recognize and to act on. And, um, you know, it's... It's kind of a it's kind of a cool way to kind of examine and break down the rivalry between the two forces mm-hmm. because it really it shows you that um, you know I guess kind of like a carp diem situation you know grab the bull by the horns mm-hmm. and uh, you know make something happen um, 
you know, write your own destiny and control your own, you know, future. Uh, it's, it's a, it's, it's kind of a, a great lesson really too, for, for this franchise to kind of in, instill in, in young people. It's kind of one of the things that, that I, I miss about the expanded universe. And there are many, there were a lot of, again, I understand the, the arguments against the EU with regards to the fact that, you know, it kind of got a little bit out of control and the storylines weren't always kept in sync, et cetera. But especially with the early releases within the EU and certainly the heir to the empire, which is, you know, certainly topical with the, the recent release of the Ahsoka trailer. Um, there's several elements in there that I, I think harken back to it, not to mention the fact that uh, they use the actual term heir to the empire. Mind blowing. But one of the things about that that series was they explained the fact that, you know, Palpatine was basically using a form of battle meditation, uh, which was a force ability, and it basically was being used by him to enhance the the performance of his troops, the the people that were, you know, uh, surrounding that Death Star, uh, the second Death Star, when the Rebels came in. And it basically was a situation where when Palpatine died, uh, and that connection got severed, it created a lot of, uh, of discord amongst those troops. It was very discordant, you might say. Uh, you might say. So, <laughs> uh, you know, that kind of explains how all of a sudden these these well-trained military leaders would, uh, would you know, because of the, the Death Star being blown up, they still had the had the firepower and the numbers to potentially route the, uh, the rebels. But, you know, that would explain why they kind of fell apart. Uh, and that was the beginning of the, the chain of events that basically led to the downfall of the Empire. I'm glad we brought the archivist on. <laughs> <laughs> and you see those two sides with Bail Organa and supporting the political side that bolstered Mon Mothma. And what an elevation of her character in Andor that we saw. Then you got the other side with Saw Guerrera who is the military side, let's just blow everything up and we'll take care of it that way. Both of those sides coming into the middle, it really allowed them to plant themselves as a opponent to the Empire for the entire original trilogy. Yeah, I mean, I think the Empire made some some huge mistakes. I mean, one of the things about using the Death Star to destroy a planet and basically make that big statement was that that also started the the ball rolling with the downfall of the empire eventually anyway and it goes back to you know a concept that i think holds true throughout star wars and it also ties back into what roe was talking about earlier uh you know where star wars itself was made kind of against all odds and the entire original trilogy really kind of falls into that vein you have the rebellion where they were doing what they did and taking the risks that they took because they had really nothing to lose but their own lives mm -hmm. and Guerrera is like the most sterling example of that because Onderon had basically been taken from him his sister had been taken from him limbs had been taken Oof. from him he got to the point where he just was willing to to risk everything every time he did a mission and lucas basically followed that same approach when he was making star wars he had nothing he had nothing. He was willing to risk it all. He wanted to get that one movie made. He wanted the rights to make the others. If he, uh, if he lucked out and it was successful, and at the time, you know, success was measured in terms of a, a smaller loss on the overall investment as opposed to any kind of financial gain. But you know, with each, and it kind of it plays into you know some of the some of the things we see even now with Star Wars. Now, 
there is something to lose if you do something and it fails, which I think maybe is why they keep going back to the same well with the, with the stories and with the characters and with the planets. And they're trying to stick to things that are tried and true. But, um, you know, the, as far as the, the actual conflict between the rebels and the, and the empire, you know, the empire had everything to lose. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they had a very regimented, uh, careful approach to the way they did things. They were fighting battles. They knew that they were going to be able to win. Uh, and the rebels were willing to risk it on, you know, a roll of the dice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a big dichotomy between those two forces. It's interesting to see the, um, those mindsets where, you know, the, the rebels are willing to sacrifice it all and give it all when there aren't many of them. Right. And the empire has all these many resources and soldiers, but you know, they, they kind of play it safer as far as they can tell. Right. Yeah. Cause they don't need to worry about losing anything because they have a mass quantity of everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they're the big machine. Yeah. What? What's? Why are we worried about this small little piece of it? Yeah, that's that's right. key. Very key. And that's obviously was exemplified in the uh, trench run. You know, on the attack of the first Death Star. Mm-hmm. You know, they're <sighs> like, why are we worrying about these small snub fighters? <laughs> evacuate? Are you ridiculous? Of course, we're not going to evacuate. Right. Oh <laughs> my gosh, that's true. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking about this the other day because I, I again the the war machine, right? The Imperial War Machine, and and I was thinking about the fact that you know you got Palpatine who orchestrated this whole conflict between the Republic and the separatists and the separatists use the droids, right? The, the losing side is going to use the droids and they proved over and over how ineffective, you know, how they basically, if you could knock out the control ship, you could take out the entire army. Uh, and Palpatine clearly had issues with droids. He didn't trust them. He wanted his side to have at least clone troopers, which are maybe, you know, you could argue a step above, but not quite human in his eyes. Uh, but then you look at, you know, his chosen apprentice, Anakin, becomes something less than human and has all of his limbs replaced with droid parts. Oh. And he basically has this Imperial war machine that he tries to replace all these clones who he still doesn't think are fully human you know, with these conscripted soldiers, but he ultimately kind of becomes trapped within this Imperial war machine that, that relies on a lot of, you know, mechanized elements basically to make it work. So he ends up kind of having to rely on the very things that he wouldn't really have preferred to. He, you know, trusted his power over anything else. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting when you talk about the uh, Imperial war machine and, and mechanization and things like that, it kind of, was one of the elements to his downfall. Only so much focus he can have. Like, I mean, he's got so many strings going on. Oh, that's cool. And I mean, you see the same thing with Luke, you know, he kind of, you get the impression that he would have preferred Luke over, over Anakin because of, Mm -hmm. yeah. Hey, if Luke is able to defeat Anakin, then, you know, it's the, the whole Sith mindset to begin with, you know, in his mind, it would have also been because Luke was almost wholly human. Uh, mm-hmm. whereas Anakin's power had been reduced by the fact that he had been kind of carved up by Obi-Wan. <laughs> and again, you know, talking about chance, I mean, I, I think if Anakin were not carved up like that, um, the galaxy would be a vastly different place. Oh, because yeah. Anak- Anakin would have been so powerful, you know, nothing stopping him. Right. There's mm-hmm. so many things that, you know, lined up like dominoes to be able to, you know, get to where we, uh, where we know the story went. Yeah. 
Well, um, that's perfect. Pat? All right. So what do we want to do? How are we going to close this thing out? First, we're going to ask our friends where they can be found on the onlines. Yes. Ro? Well, I can be found wherever you download your other favorite podcasts. Just look for the Scare of Scuttlebutt podcast on podcatchers everywhere. Yeah, and I can be found uh, at jtapodcast.com. Uh, definitely look for us. Uh, we're going to be having new, new episodes coming out here uh, regularly. And uh, Pat would argue regularly would be twice a year, but we're going to go for uh, for twice a month. So, Ooh, uh, yeah, that's a nice release schedule, you like I must say. Two times a month. See, I thought that the reason you hadn't put out an episode is because Dennis Nedry had, had recklessly <laughs> driven in and knocked over the sign for the exit, and, and then I got turned around, and you got lost. Yes, that was it as well. Okay, also right. that. I mean, that's the story you told me. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. That works. Yeah. Dooku erased the original uh, excuse from the archive, so I forgot what oh. I told. But I thought it didn't exist. Oh, oh. <laughs> and then I guess Charles can be found on conversations.com. <laughs> Facebook.com slash conversations. At Swations on the Twitters. Conversations on Insta. And we're part of the uh, bio.link slash red5. Uh, that's the Red 5 Podcast Network. We are founding members of the Red 5 Network. So in that sense, do what must be done. Greetings, listener. Just a reminder that the podcast you just heard is a proud member of the Red 5 Network family. Red5network.com offers you a great variety of shows you'll be sure to love. So the next time you're itching for quality content, make sure you head over to red5network.com. You'll find this podcast along with a whole lot more. All wings report in. It's the Red 5 Network. <laughs>